The first of our readings this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house, household, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and 13 to 17. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What, verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the word, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings, ra because the law brings wrath, 
and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives lives to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The word of the Lord. The gospel reading today is found in the book of John, John chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when, you, when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do, not, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God... So love the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we pray that um, you will speak to us and that your Holy Spirit will be in this place and that each one of us will hear a word 
and hear the word that we need. We pray that um, all of us will not only hear your voice, but be willing to follow where that voice leads. We ask that, um, once again, that Jesus, by the Spirit of Jesus, will be our teacher this morning. Amen. I'd like to um, try something um, somewhat difficult, that is to preach on a uh, very popular passage, passage that uh, all of us have probably have heard dozens and dozens of times. And some of you have been think, uh, might be thinking, if he's going to tell me I must be born again, I've been there and done that. Well, I might tell you that, but I hope I'll tell you in perhaps a slightly different way. And I'd like to start by going back to the beginning, or the virtual beginning, which is Abraham. And Abraham, in the passage that we read today, chapter 12, it's, uh, of course, and it's, it's an incredible story. Some guy somewhere that we really don't know very much about, all of a sudden gets a call. And the call is, Abraham, you know, leave your country. But actually, before we look at 12, Genesis 12, I have to understand that uh, it is actually written with an I on Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, or Babel. It's a, sto it's a story of uh, human chutzpah, uh, a, kind of a, a nerviness, a, um, a, a certain cheek or rebelliousness, the human family is all united, and they have great determination that they're going to go up to God using their own method or their, their, um, their own technology, uh, their own wisdom, their own abilities, and they're going to make a name great for themselves. And uh, God has to come down, and he sees the danger uh, in a you might say, a human family that is united around something other than God. And he scatters them. He scatters them. And the next chapter is Abraham. And uh, Abraham, we don't know anything about Abraham or very little about Abraham. Abraham receives a call. And the call that he receives is as follows. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land that I, that I will show you. Abraham responds. God gives a gift to Abraham. He gives a gift to the human family. We don't, again, know very much about Abraham. Why Abraham? Why does he deserve this, this honor? It's not very, certainly not very uh, clear to us. It's seemingly undeserved. And uh, God gives a free gift. 
and the free gift that God's going to give to Abraham and to the entire human family. He's going to give Abraham many descendants. He's going to give Abraham a land. And by the way, isn't it interesting the way Jews and Christians read this story? Because Jews often focus on the land as a gift. And we often focus as Christians on the number of descendants. But still, nonetheless, nonetheless, God gives, blesses Abraham. And as a result of that blessing, yes, as a result of that gift, the way that God enriches Abraham, yes, God expects a response from Abraham. You might call this the law of the gift. And in our society, or the way that we think of things in Western terms, is that we think a gift is only a gift if there are no strings attached. Yes, it has to be without an ulterior motive. And the scripture teaches us, and Jesus teaches us, that when we give, we should give in that manner. We should give with that spirit. We should give without the expectation of return or manipulating or getting something out of the investment, whether it's an investment to charity or to someone in our family. But that's not the way with God. God gives a gift which is undeserved, yes, which is something uh, very rich and almost unspeakable, and that whether that gift is to Abraham, to Israel, or to the whole world through his son, Jesus the Messiah. And the reason for the gift is so that there is a response from us. And what that response does is to establish a relationship. And God enhances and blesses Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, and ultimately the whole world, yes, in order, yes. So once we receive that gift, we enter into relationship. And uh, we give gifts back in return. But it should be clear that the gifts we give back in return in no way <clears throat> compensate or repay for what God has given us. And whatever we give back to God, whether it's our time or money or our lives, actually God himself has given those to us. We're simply returning what, he's, what he has blessed us with. This is the law of the, this you might say is the law of the gift or the way that gifts work in the ancient world. And <clears throat> Abraham responds. His first response is, he gives up his past. He gives up his country. He gives up his people. He gives up his father's household. He gives up his land. And he goes to a place, the Lord doesn't give him a name, and uh, there is no uh, Google Maps to show him where he's going. He goes to a place that the Lord will show him. Yes, and it's in his going. It's in his going that, um, Abraham becomes uh, not just a blessing to the world, but it's in his going and it's in that response that Abraham 
is transformed and he's changed. He's not the same man in Genesis 12 that we meet in Genesis 24. He has many, you might say, tests or obstacles along the way. But the life or the gift that God gives him and the way that he responds brings not only blessing to the whole world, but transforms Abraham to such an extent that he becomes a model for Jews and Christians to this day. And what this is tied up with, in a way, is with seeing, right? With this gift of confidence or this trust that he has in the Lord. Because in verse 12, his first test or his first challenge, he leaves and it says, the Lord says, go to a land, I will show you. He hasn't seen the land, but he goes. And in the process, he sees, right? He sees not something just physical, but he perceives something or discerns something beyond what is physical, beyond what is material. And you know, even the, his last big test, which we find in 22 of Genesis, it's the same. Now God has asked him first to give up his past. He's made his present terribly inconvenient because he said, I'm giving you this whole, all of this land. Oh, and by the way, it's full of people, so you really aren't going to inherit the land. And you can live on the edge. You can live in the, in the northern Negev, or you can live in the Jordan Valley, but you really don't come into possession of the land. And you don't see your descendants who will be like the stars of the, the sky. And so the God uh, tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Yes, the beloved son. Go to Moriah. Yes. Um, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He obeyed a command without delay. He took his son Isaac, yes, and on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in a distance, yes. So here we come back to seeing. He saw this place in a distance. And of course, what does the book of Hebrews tells us? The book of Hebrews tells us is that Abraham could look and see beyond, yes, the, the, his, you might say, his current reality. He could see in such a way that he could actualize or be confident in the promises of God. And um, it says that uh, in Hebrews 11 that Abraham didn't settle the land, but he looked for a city. He looked for something better, for a city whose, whose builder and whose architect was God. So again, it's here we have seeing. And in 15 of Genesis, Abraham starts to talk to God. And here we have a dialogue, the first dialogue between Abraham and God. And Abraham said, okay, God, where are all these promises? I mean, you promised me 
Yeah, all these things, I'm getting old, I don't see them, I don't, I'm starting to doubt. And then, of course, and very interestingly, at night, God has an encounter with Abraham. And the encounter is um, um, God reassuring Abraham, look up at the stars, count the stars if you can indeed count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, it said. Abraham, and here it's not the word faith, because faith can be a little bit misunderstood. Abraham trusted in the Lord. Yes, faith can be intellectual or can be doctrine, but trust is relational. So Abraham trusts in the Lord. And then later, Abraham has a dream. Um, he's in a deep sleep. It's dark. Um, there, God says, you know, you're going to, your nation is going to be enslaved for 400 years. Things are going to be dreadful. But, but the nation will uh, ultimately uh, come out. And in the process, there is a covenant uh, with a, uh, a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Yes, these are sacrificed. We have the story of vultures here. And in the midst of this vision or dream about death, right, comes life. All right, comes a reassurance of God's promises. Abraham, you will get a land. Abraham, your descendants will be stars, like the stars in the sky, and more. So in this, you might say, the gift, right? The gift of God's gift to us, our response, which is always giving back to God what he gave us, right? There is a principle, and that principle is more often than, that, than not, as painful as it may be, is that death or out of death or out of sacrifice or out of self-denial comes life. And it, I hope, takes us to uh, the st our story of Nicodemus in John chapter three. And again, the question is about life, yes? And in this case, it's divine life, or sometimes what we call, uh, what we call eternal life. So Nicodemus comes at night, and of course, night in John's gospel is signifying some kind of blindness or some kind of, um, you might say some kind of misunderstanding of what the truth is. And Nicodemus comes, he does come to Jesus, and here he's, he says the following. He says, or Jesus replies to him, to his questions. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, unless he has new life, right? No one can see, right? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, I'd like to also read verse five. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
Now, preaching um, John 3 and preaching um, you must be born again is a wonderful thing. You know, I'm not going to be critical of it. But I very, very rarely hear anyone ever explain why we must be born again. It's almost as if being born again is an end in itself. You must be born again, and then you get saved, and then you have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? But John's gospel, which very rarely mentions the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, like the other three gospels, here only mentions it twice, perhaps one other time, when Jesus is on trial and in front of Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But John's gospel knows that Jesus is king and it understands, it understands the importance, yes, of Jesus who came to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven with his miracles, to illustrate the kingdom of heaven with his parables. And the kingdom of heaven, as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and other places in the scripture, is first and foremost, yes, about Jesus being king and ruling, yes, uh, on behalf or, or taking control and cooperation with his father over the human mess which exists to this day. And later, in other places, the kingdom of heaven and the gospels is the, you might say, it's not a place. It's not a... Uh, an, experience, an emotional experience. It's not, again, even being born again. You have to be born again to see this. But it also becomes, the, it also becomes a group of people, yes, who have made Jesus king. And so if Jesus is the king, yes, in order to see that reality, in order to see what God is doing in and through his son, yes, we must be born again. There must be, um, there must be a new start. There must be a new birth. But the new birth isn't the end in itself. The new birth is only a beginning. And the very popular verse that we all know and love, and it is a beautiful verse. I don't in any way we should in no way demean it even if it's been misused or cheapened. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Yes, for God so loved the world. Right? God so loved his creation that he gave his one and only son. He gave a gift. And that gift is that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here's the gift. God gives, but also he expects a response. 
Oh, what response am I supposed to give God? After all, it's nothing to do with works. And this, this is, we don't want to add anything to salvation. But let's think for just a moment. What, is, what does it mean to be saved? And, and in many Western churches, Protestant churches, salvation is some type of legal arrangement. And I don't disagree with that because there's some truth to it. It's a person who comes to Jesus, says, I'm a sinner, forgive me. And um, it's as if we're in a courtroom and uh, the judge is about to, being God, is about to sentence us. And our defense attorney, Jesus, stands up and says, I've forgiven him, a judge, you know, please let him go free. And in some ways, yes, that becomes what this verse is all about. I will just believe, I'll believe something. Yes, almost it becomes very intellectual. But what if salvation is more than that? What if salvation is a relationship? Yes, what if being born again in order to see the reality of King Jesus and his work, you know, in our midst? Yes, what if that is only the beginning? And that becomes that relationship is based on believing. And believing in John's gospel is trusting into a person or believing into a person, and which by the way, faith is, the word faith is never used in John's gospel, right? The verb belief or the verb to trust is used. And it's used not just in an intellectual way, oh, I'll believe in Jesus, oh, I'll believe that he died for me, but actually the way that the gospel uses the verse is that there's a commitment to a person. It's believing into, trusting into, abiding, abiding with a person, and in this case, Jesus. It's being a disciple of Jesus, yes? That becomes the basis of relationship, right? That becomes the basis of receiving eternal life. And what is eternal life? We've cheapened it only to mean it's someplace I'm going to go when, you die, when we die. Yes, eternal life is just that place somewhere in heaven. But if, again, if, we're, if we are going to take John's gospel and to take these words in its fullest context, then we better adjust, you might say, our understanding or widen our understanding of, of what it means to believe, yes, to remain in relationship with, to re remain committed to, to be in an active trust, yes, not something I do, did once when I was 10 or 12, but something that is ongoing so that we can have eternal life, so that we can have divine life, so that we can share the life that Jesus has with the Father, so that we can share the life of the Trinity. That's the invitation. 
The invitation to Abraham was, was one of life. It was the gift of life. Abraham, you will have a land. You will have descendants. You will have an inheritance. The gift of God to us through Jesus is something more, it's something more than physical, right? It's something eternal. Now, God is eternal, and entering into a relationship with him means that we have eternal life. We'll have everlasting life. It's a life that begins now, and it continues after we die. And Jesus, of course, put it in a very succinct way in John 17, when he gave a definition of what eternal life is. Yes, eternal life is very simply... He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, and know to know someone and to believe in someone in this gospel is the same. Yes, so again we think, oh, oh I know the Lord. But to hear us, to know the Lord is to be committed to a person, yes? And that commitment, of course, results in obedience. Yes, that um, they may have eternal life to all those you... Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Messiah, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing your work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, with that glory that I had with you before the world began. And by the way, that believing or the commitment that we have to a person, we have to commit ourselves to Jesus in the way that he understands himself. This is not my personal Jesus or the American Jesus or the, the Republican Jesus or the Democratic Jesus or the socialist Jesus, whatever, of course, in every generation, we, we make God in our image. And we do the same. We do the same to his son, Jesus. Or our understanding of who Jesus is comes out, you might say, oftentimes of our own brokenness, our own uh, emotional needs. No, this is, the, this is the Jesus that is revealed to us in all of scripture, starting with Abraham and going to the end, and a Jesus that's revealed to us uh, through the tradition of the church, yes, over the centuries. And it's a, the Jesus that's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's not, again, my personal Jesus, but it's a commit, believing or knowing is a commitment to, a, to, to Jesus as he understands himself to be as being one equal with the Father, right? Uh, as being one who is involved with creation and more. And the relationship, the relationship of having eternal life, right? Because he, again, here, eternal life is not simply going to heaven. It's about an intimate relationship with the Lord now as we speak. And if we don't tr try to enter into that, 
or if we don't try to somehow take advantage of that. We're cheating ourselves and cheating others out of the blessing that God wants us to, God wants to give us. But it involves, <laughs> it involves death, yes? It's in the death of Jesus that we have life. It's in our death, and here I don't speak about necessarily our physical death, but our, our willing to sacrifice, our willing to deny ourselves, our willing to give up our plans and to go with his plans, yes? Just as Abraham gave, was, gave up his past, gave up his present, was even willing to give up his future, yes? Right? Jesus tells us that uh, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, you know, in John 11, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many, many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Yes, and this is our challenge. Yes, we must be born again. We must start. But again, we're born again to see the kingdom of heaven and then to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we enter that kingdom of heaven, we begin, if we take the other gospel seriously, it always begins with repentance. Yes, it begins with repentance. And uh, then it begins with submitting ourselves to Jesus and allowing him to begin ruling and reigning over us and allowing him to take control over us. In other words, yes, it's the, again, it's the law of the gift and that's that gift that gives life. God gives his son and in the words of John 3.16, we put our trust in him we put our future in his hands. If necessary, we turn away from our past, especially if our past gets in the way. Our ethnicity, our parents, our, our, our political views, whatever that may be. And secondly, yes, our present may be inconvenient. And finally, we were prepared to give up our future. That's what it means to have eternal life. Because all those things pale in comparison, right, to having a relationship with the Lord. Having that intimacy with the Lord. So yes, being born again is a start, but it's not the finish. And just as Abraham, yes, continued to deny himself, to be obedient, although not perfectly, yes, he came to the place of transformation and change. And so too, that ultimately is the goal that we have, right? And our, that will depend, by the way, on whether we do the truth, 
according to the end of this passage, because Jesus talks about those who want, who refuse the light, and the reason they refuse the light is because the light exposes our darkness. And many of us, even as believers, want to hold on to our sin, or we want to hold on to our bad habits, or we want to hold on to our unhealthy view of others or the world, as you might say. And if we don't do the truth, or if we don't live in the truth, we still continue to live in darkness. And living in darkness is not, does not um, enable us to live in, the, live in the light and to walk in the light as he is in the light. So I think these are our challenges. Not to say, oh, I've been born again. This really has nothing to do with me. But to say that the Bible from Abraham to Jesus to the day in which we live, yes, God still has the same principles. He gives us a gift of life. And uh, the way we respond to that life is by giving him Yes, giving him to ourselves totally, refusing to walk in the darkness and refusing to live a lie. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are challenged, I tr trust, by these verses. And we're challenged, Lord, to uh, enter into the blessings that we have in your son, Jesus Christ and in the relationship we have with him. We pray that we will be dissatisfied and disturbed and um, made uncomfortable. Lord, if we do not pursue, yes, eternal life to its fullness, we do not take every advantage and every opportunity, Lord, to come to a deeper relationship with you and your son, to walk in a way that um, brings glory to you, but also brings life to others. Lord, we pray that uh, you will indeed clarify these things for us, and Lord, even bring purity to your church and to those who call upon your name at this time in which we live. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.